0: Welcome to Meet the Filmmakers at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Michael Rosser.
1: Hi, thank you. Uh, and thanks for coming. I'm Mike Rosser. I'm the news editor at Screen International. Um, and it uh, gives me great pleasure to be moderating this Meet the Filmmakers session. Um, so, could Jackie the True Story... It's uh, powerful drama about a group of British soldiers uh, who became trapped in a minefield while stationed in Afghanistan and reveals some extraordinary tales of bravery uh, and their consequences as the troop risked their lives for each other. We've got the director, producer and executive producer here to talk about making the film. Uh, but before we meet them, let's take a look at the trailer for the incredible, uh, incredibly powerful Kajaki, The True Story. This is it, Jackie Dam. What oh, it's all about.
2: Clinical turn is dick rot. anyone nice? Four, actually. All delightful.
0: Bastard. Right, so water, got burn pit. There's about 16 odd here at Athens, seven, eight
1: mm. up at Normandy. Dad, I'm a man, I'm British. Am I all of a You're an
2: idiot. Mm. Taking eight up here. A few Chinese rockets, bit of burning burn the valley, but I say it's
0: lucky because we're out of ammo.
2: Keep your eyes up. Something's coming. <laughs> the militia's threatening to destroy money from civilians. Come give uh, the ladies a shout. I have a plan together. Freddie will check at the bottom. I'll see you when you get back.
0: Stay on marked tracks. Kill
2: him by Bravo. You, Chris, come on, man. Be-
1: So, please welcome the director of Kajaki, Paul Katis, uh, producer Andrew DeLaubinier, and executive producer Gareth Ellis Unwin. Take
3: a seat. Thank, you. Thank you.
1: Thank you. So, Kajaki, an incredibly uh, powerful film, one that um, has sort of Burned its way into my memories ever since seeing it. Um, you know, just talking before, you were saying, you know, I, I don't know if you remember this bit or that bit, but I remember every single bit of that film. It's uh, extremely visceral, extremely powerful, um, amazing, uh, amazing piece of filmmaking. So, you know, I, I wonder, how did you, how did this story first sort of come to you? How did you first hear about, you know, these uh, this incident that happened?
3: Um, Well, I was actually looking for a war story to to tell because we don't tend to um, tell war films in the UK particularly. And just doing some simple research. uh, Googling on a Monday morning, uh, punched in uh, Afghanistan incidents. I was looking for a contemporary incident with the British Army. uh, And this came up fairly swiftly. Um, And once you read the story, once you read Mark's citation, it's so totally unbelievable. You go, that's got to be a film.
1: Because mm. I wonder, because I'm going to basically, w- what we're going to do here is I'm going to talk to these guys for about 15, 20 minutes, and it'd be great to get some of your questions. But I wonder, it'd be interesting to know, you know how many people here have seen the film. Ah, interesting. Because it would be, so you're in for a treat, basically. Um, but I, I wonder, you know, I, I described it a little bit. How would you describe the, the events of what happened in this film?
3: Um. A a troop of British soldiers were uh, on overwatch, on a ridge overlooking the Kajaki Dam in Helmand province. This basically meant that they were in a reasonably secure place because they were well up the top of this this mountain, um, overlooking largely the ANA down, was engaged with the Taliban on a daily basis. They uh, got a little bored, to be honest, up there, uh, not doing an awful lot. They spotted a roadblock a little way off, just outside sniping range And three of them uh, decided to go on a patrol to try and engage this roadblock. They came off the mountaintop and were crossing a wadi in order to get to another hilltop when one of them stepped on a a landmine. A landmine left, in fact, by the Russians 25, 30 years previously. Um, Everyone rushed down to try and help and uh, ran into the minefield, not realizing, in a sense, that it was so heavily mined. um, And a series of other mines went off and decimated them, basically. And they were left there waiting for rescue for some four hours. Mm-hmm. That's the story in a, in a nutshell. Yeah. I
1: wonder if it'd be useful, actually, just to kind of show a bit of a scene setter as to you know, the sort of the layout of, of that area. It, could, we, could we maybe play that clip?
0: Ten quid. Thanks, I'm pumped. New tax art's coming, in, Spud. I'll see it up. This is Athens. You've got 360 all round defence. Down here, you've got the GPMG oh, 50 God. cal. Clackers for the Claymores. In here's the, the water water interpreter's room. place. That's water, ablutions. You've got burn pit, pit down beyond that. Right, this needs to go over with the other stuff. Ken? But well, I did it yesterday. Thank you, Ken. <laughs> thank you, Prosper.
2: Go on, lads. You're in <laughs> here with the
0: medic in the med store. Right. HQ, right. mortar pit. There's about 60 <laughs> odd here at Athens. 7-8 up at Normandy. That's it. Stay on marked tracks. Enjoy.
1: So, um, I, I mean, it, it's clear from that that, uh, and I find it interesting watching it, that there are no sort of Uh, recognisable faces necessarily. So you're not sitting there thinking, oh, you know, Mark Wahlberg's gonna make it to the end, he'll be fine. So you're you're genuinely sort of on a knife edge thinking, none of these guys are safe as none of them were. Um, I wonder when it came to actually casting it, you know, how you went about
3: doing that and
1: if you had that sort of in mind.
3: We we very much wanted to make an ensemble piece. You can feel the sort of slightly documentary feel that we we wanted to introduce, certainly into the early part of of the film. And with that in mind, we cast the net very wide in order to find our actors. And we actually work with a, a, a casting director called um, John Hubbard, who's done this before, who sends out a message to everybody that's out there and say, you know, anyone that thinks they can play these roles, come forward. And they saw about 500 people, I think. Um, I didn't have to see all 500. It was reduced by the time I got to see them. Um, but it means that you're getting some, some actors uh, cast from places where you wouldn't normally expect to find them. And the one rule we had for it was that uh, if we wanted someone with a certain accent, regional accent, we would cast from that area. So uh, Ben, who plays Stu Hale, comes from the West Country. Stu Hale came from the West Country, etc., etc. And that was uh, deep joy because it gave a sort of uh, originality and authenticity to them that we wouldn't otherwise have got.
0: Mm.
3: Now,
1: you know, I know that pulling together finance for um, you know a film like this can often be a challenge, um, but I know, Andrew, that you sort of turned to crowdfunding um, as a way of doing that. Can you talk a little bit about you know, why you decided to do that
0: and uh, you know, how, how you went about doing it? Yeah, well, we used um, Indiegogo as a crowdfunding platform, not actually principally to raise all the production finance, but to raise a, a decent sum and we raised about £50,000 that right. could be used for some very early pre-production and development finance actually the other side of using a crowdfunding platform like Indiegogo was it enabled us to start building a community and putting our offering if you like up online and seeing who who was out there and who was interested and very quickly um, certainly there was a from military and ex-military there was a big engagement with that crowdfunding and people were recommending it to other people and people were saying I was out there or I've been out there and it then enabled us actually people heard about the film through the crowdfunding platform or through someone who'd heard about it through the crowdfunding platform and we were being sent pictures people who'd been on tour to the kajaki region people who had been out to helmand people who knew the incident, people who would just been there three years later um, and as a way of engaging with a very wide range of people very quickly uh, it was fantastic mm. um, as well as to us proving that there's 500 plus people out there who've all put you know 10 pounds in up to two thousand pounds into the crowdfunding, which gave us a bit of comfort that we were on the right track and doing something that there was an audience for. Yeah,
1: and, and um, I mean I, remember, I seem to remember that it sort of went into production quite quickly relatively for a film, um, and, it, and you found yourself out in Jordan in pretty much no time. Uh, can you talk about, it, it, seemed, it looks like a quite harsh environment to work in can you talk a little bit about just you know the
0: sort of challenges of that yeah i mean it, it did go into production quickly i mean one of the things we were able to do with our crowdfunding money was go and scout locations so paul had a trip to south africa looking at south africa we looked at morocco and we looked at jordan um, i think from the early days we knew that we found a fantastic place in jordan and we knew that you know the location was a dead ringer for the kajaki dam itself uh, the logistics of, you know, Jordan's a good place to film, it's got a technical skill set that is pretty good. Um, they've shot some big features out there, so we knew we'd be able to find the, the right uh, crew out there who could help us. Um, we perhaps wanted to film slightly earlier in the summer than we ended up doing. You know, we originally thought May, June would be a good time to be out in Jordan. We didn't actually get out there till the end of July, August which is definitely the hottest time of year in Jordan. So you end up filming in, you know, 40 to 50 degree heat. We were down at the Dead Sea level, so we were 600 meters or whatever that is below sea level. Um, So saved on sweat, saved on flies, Uh, but it was a pretty arduous shoot for, certainly for the cast who are togged up in full military gear a lot, but you know, for the whole crew as well. Yeah. Well maybe,
1: uh, I know we've got a clip of uh, the, you know, the guys in, Full kit sort of in the middle of it. Um, so maybe we could play that uh, right about now if that's okay.
2: Whoa, 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 Whoa! Wait! I think I found something.
0: No, it's just a rock. <laughs> Jesus
3: Christ. Oh, yeah. i hey sorry, lads. Come I'm sorry. on, and listen, it's important that
2: we clear the rocks out as well, in
1: case you want to come down and plant some cabbages one day. I think that kind of gives you an idea of what it's like for a good portion of the film. It's a sort of, oh, my God, and then it's okay. You know, there seems to be this... You, you struck a really nice balance between that tension, where I'm sort of gripping onto the edge of the seat, but then you, you kind of bring a brevity to it as well, you know. Can you talk about that? the importance of striking that balance maybe, uh, you know, with the, with the arc of the drama?
3: Well, I, I, the idea obviously is really to take the audience and put them in that minefield. This is what we set out to try and achieve. Um, so part of that is making it as authentic as possible, making it as believable as possible, um, but also making uh, the audience feel sort of what the troops are feeling at the time. So the idea definitely was to try and sort of ratchet up the tension in the way that they would be feeling it. So they are there exploring the ground as you did exactly see and they would come across a rock and they would think that it was possibly a mine. You never knew where these things were. This was the problem. Um, having said that, the nature of troops are anyway that they have a very, very deep sense of black humour. I suppose they sort of have to really, um, in a way. And it manifests itself throughout the entire film. That's just the the start of it, to be honest. Even when they are seriously in deep, deep trouble, they're still joking with one another. And again, you know, I think, theatrically, that's a, that's a great thing to have as something you can play with, because it allows you to take the audience into some very dark places and then give them a little relief. And it's very interesting watching it with different audiences. People laugh in different places, and sometimes in places that I wouldn't necessarily ex- expect them to laugh, but it's that kind of release of nervous tension uh, that all audiences need.
1: Yeah. Talking of releases of nervous tension, Gareth, and by that I mean you are the light-hearted. You very you bring a lot of brevity to these things.
2: Okay, I'm just uh, worried about the segue now. How it's in, it's a, coming. It's coming, believe me.
1: No, it's as a, as the producer of uh, the King's Speech. Um, I'm sort of wondering. You know what what it was about Kajaki that sort of brought you. You know, kind of got your interest to get involved with the project.
2: Well, I think the, um, the key thing as a producer, whether you're an exec or, 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 or a producer, is you're always looking for material that you feel has some sort of contemporary relevance or some timeliness. And, you know, the the arch game we play is to try and find stories early enough so that once you've gone through the production life of a film, a distribution strategy, and it's actually hitting an audience, that you're landing at about the right time. And, and that's the sort of the alchemy that's involved in in choosing material to work on. With Kajaki, I think, you know, there was a former relationship with Paul and Andrew. We'd worked together in a, in another guise and, and, and worked well together, so there was an appetite to, to sort of put the, put the band back together again. Um, but there was just this deep-rooted feeling, which I think we all shared, that, you know, there really was a paucity of British contemporary military stories. And whilst uh, our American cousins had Been quite effective in the last 10, 15 years to shine the light on some of their exploits. Uh, We didn't seem to do the same in equal measure. So you know, it was it wasn't by happenstance that our film was on release and premiering at the time that Bastion was closing down. Um, And you know, it was that timeliness and the fact that I thought that we were you know exploring material that that was new and fresh and had its its own right to be told that's what sort of seduced me into the the project mm.
1: and i and i know that the your sort of approach to the distribution of it was um, quite unique as well i yeah. mean can you talk about how you know you about that side of things yeah
2: absolutely i mean um, you know kajaki's now being sort of vaunted as as this sort of new way of thinking and i You know, I don't think we're necessarily pioneers of a new form of distribution. What we did was, as a collection of producers, when we found our path blocked in certain ways, we became creative and came up with solutions. But I had a very good relationship with the View Cinema chain, um, because of some, some prior work that I'd done with them, and I was able to get them to sign up to a UK release on script alone. Normally an exhibitor would actually pick up a title like Kajaki much, much later in the process and because we had the ability to evidence that interest from view to our potential investors, these two things became coexistent. So, um, you know, we were doing something slightly, slightly new, and then it sort of followed a, a quasi-traditional platform release, which was that we had a break within one chain that we then platformed out through most of the other exhibitors, um, you know, and through, some quite sort of visionary um, possibilities, like our screen, which picture house run, you know, the film is still actually seeing screenings. I believe there's one in Godalming coming up in a week, two weeks' time or something. You know, I think my high ambition, um, which would be sort of flicking two fingers up against the the sort of historically usual way of doing things, would be to have Kajaki on a screen one year after we first premiered in November. Um, And I think that'd be quite something cool to, to be able to achieve
1: yeah and uh and i know that uh, you know one of the reasons as well was that uh f- for this kind of approach distribution is that a portion a percentage of the profits went to charity is that right yeah
2: and basically yeah. the there's four, four charities we're working with the ha- hashmite commission for Disabled Soldiers, so that's a Jordanian charity, and that's as a thank you for all of the brilliant support that they gave us with filming in Jordan. We're also working with the British Legion, Health for Heroes and Walking with the Wounded, um, and they all have a profit corridor within, within the, the film itself. So being able to exclude certain commissions and expenses that would have been afforded to a distributor just makes that pot a, a, a little bit bigger
1: yeah um yeah because yeah exactly by sort of taking control of it, then it means that uh, I think you described it as they kind of come uh, they're a lot closer to the top of the yeah yeah exactly um so so just to get then back to the actual meat of the story, I mean, I wonder like it, at these screenings, I know that the the veterans you know some of the guys that were actually there um, attended these screenings um what was their reaction like to seeing themselves on screen?
3: We had a screening before the premiere, actually, that where, we, where we, we showed it to them. I, sh- I should reverse back a little bit. In the development process, we, having come across the Board of Inquiry report and the coroner's report, those documents supplied the spine of the story for us, which was great. But we very much felt the need to talk to the guys who had served. Uh, it was only 2006. They were still around. Half of them were still, still in the army. Um, and the other thing that we wanted to do is to talk to the parents of the soldier who died uh, to get their consent, really, in a sense, to allow us to go ahead and, and, and make the movie. They were fantastically supportive. They loved the idea. And to a man, all the other soldiers, when we asked them, the first thing they, they said to us is, have you spoken to Bob and Jem? So once we'd spoke to the parents, in a sense, that unlocked all the others who were then content to run with us and to talk to us about their experiences of the day. Um, and all those experiences were invaluable for us as filmmakers because they brought not only um, a richness and a new insight into what was actually going on, but a lot of the dialogue was actually taken from what they remembered saying to one another. I and mean, certainly an awful lot of the humor came directly from the horse's mouth. Yeah. So we ended up able to construct a very sort of dense script that I think has uh, an awful lot of depth on an individual character level that we wouldn't have got if we hadn't spoken to these guys. So anyway. We'd already done that. We'd involved them in that pre-production process. We said they can have a look at the script to check that they're represented correctly. That still didn't mean that they had to have a bit of a leap when they actually sat down in the cinema and watched the thing. And we were very, very nervous at that point that we'd, we got it right or not. But fortunately to a man, they all liked the representation. They appreciated what we'd done. And for some, it was even almost a sort of cathartic experience to, to watch it through from this third eye perspective. Because of course, they, some of them have been on a, a morphine for most of the uh, episode, didn't really know what's going on, but knew what the consequences were. And now for the first time, they had the opportunity to see the thing uh, as, as a whole. Mm. Um, so you know, to a man, they've been happy with it. But more than that, you know, all the military that have seen it have given it the thumbs up for authenticity. And we're, we're very, very pleased about that. Because one thing we wanted to do was to make it authentic and make it real for the British public. So if we can't make it real for the soldiers that actually served there, how can we be making it real for the British public?
1: Yeah, and it certainly did feel very real. I mean, there's, um, maybe we could play the, the third clip here, where, um, yeah, I think, I think the, the, the clip speaks for itself.
3: It's a failed helicopter rescue attempt.
1: Yeah, it's a yeah, failed helicopter rescue attempt, yeah.
0: Luke,
2: mid pack. one. Take it nearby. Over. Negative, Confirm. We have two. We be two P1s requiring Kazabak. Moving impossible due to location being minefield. Chinook unsuitable for pickup due to location being minefield. Request HH60 with winch as previously indicated. Location is up minefield.
1: Um, so I mean that looked like you know an extremely challenging piece to film would you I wonder kind of what you found to be maybe the biggest challenge you faced when filming and how you creatively got through it
3: oh, that's such a good question because at the time it didn't it didn't feel sort of individually challenging those sequences they're all you know things that you have to sort of choreograph and get right um, once, once we were on location um, there were a series of individual challenges. Certainly coordinating with the Jordanian military was interesting, but they were such brilliant guys. They really were. I mean I do remember talking to the pilot who flew that sequence uh, you know when, we're, when, you can, when you can see down that, that shot from a helicopter. We didn't have a proper rig so we were sort of hanging out the side of this helicopter with bungee cords holding onto the camera. And I said what we wanted to do which was to fly down this valley and to look down and see the guys as they're trying to wave it forward and the guy went, yeah, okay. And I said, well, of course, we're going to have to go in sideways, because we are poking out the side door. So he just gave me this, this steely look for a moment as a pilot, and <laughs> he went, okay. <laughs> and it was only afterwards, when I chatted to the guys on the ground, that they told me what an astonishing piece of flying it was, because he was flying with effectively sideways momentum in a valley, pointing out the sort of long way that way, with the two hills on either side like that. And he flew in perfectly and did a perfect take that way, because we were on board, so I could also look at the monitor. Um, but the guys on the ground said it was just an astonishing piece of flying. So uh, it was great fun to be doing it, to be honest.
1: I love his reaction, though. It's kind of... Oh,
3: right. yeah, okay. Well, I, I, we carried on. From that point on, realised I had to raise the challenge every day <laughs> to go and fire something else at him. We did, unfortunately, knock down the catering tent, though, didn't we?
2: I yeah, we know. took out the catering tent, the honey <laughs> wagons, and I think the majority of the extras that day. <laughs> What's a honey wagon? Uh, it's the place that you go and leave your honey when you're out on location.
1: Fair enough. A loo. Ah, <laughs> yes. I see. Ah. Um, Andrew, <laughs> moving on. Um, I wonder, you know, kind of going in throughout this process, what you've kind of found to be, uh, you know, the biggest challenge. Because this is this is the first uh, feature that you produce, is that
0: right? But, yeah, first feature I've produced. i so um, yeah. been working with Paul for 15 years producing short films. Um, so I think the mechanics of production, although much bigger, were, were understandable. What's been completely new from the um, start to finish, really, has been the process post delivery of the film in terms of releasing it ourselves mm. and working with the different exhibitors and then distributors and then sales agents internationally. Uh, and I think putting it all together at the beginning was much bigger um, than I'd anticipated. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And and you know the the distribution of it you know has been such a big thing i know you guys have just been out there you know doing a lot of q a's and uh, screening it all over the country um you know gareth i wonder you know in in your experience of doing that over the past what is it now like eight months you know what you've found to be the kind of the most difficult part of that well i mean process. i think the um
2: it's been in the main it's been really enjoyable i mean what we did was we premiered in the West End, we then took it out on a little sort of uh, regional tour where we played the film in the towns of uh, importance to a number of the real veterans. So we went up to Edinburgh, which is where Mark Wright's mum and dad um, live. We went down to Bristol where Stu Hale was from. We did a Glasgow screening. Uh, We did an event at Colchester and we kept on just tying it back to either the veterans or places of significance for the the paras. Um, And it was an incredibly sort of moving part of the process. Normally when you do those junkets, I mean, I remember doing the, the BAFTA junket for, for the King's Speech, and we went to a number of independent um, cinemas, and we'd do a Q&A similar to this. And it was lovely, it was, you know, lots of people that were interested in film or students of film. Um, and it was sort of all quite nice and comfortable. Whereas this one, you know, you were basically running interference on checking with the veterans okay, with the, with the wives, and uh, I mean, I remember Stu Hale's wife, was absolutely shredded, you know, and and we we sat and held hands and we talked for about half an hour, um, because she thought she had absolutely reconciled what had happened to her her husband when he lost lost his limb, but it was just suddenly watching the first act, and that was as much as she could she could watch. Um, so there was these moments that just had real resonance in terms of it felt that we were doing important work, and I don't mean that to sound wanky and charity and all the rest of it but we genuinely felt that there was something outside of just making a movie on this one and I think that's why you know we continue to put a lot of our own time in to events like today to, to promote the film
0: absolutely I think I mean picking up on that I think um, one of the things we realized very quickly is there's a big responsibility when you're making a film and telling the story of real people and lots of real people who have films made about them are already famous because that's why you're making a film about them uh, or they're well-known, or they're out there, or they're in the media, or they're infamous. Um, but, you know, we were picking up a story about 15 real blokes, and we had their real names in the film, and those were real people who were either serving or now had new jobs somewhere else. And, you know, the cast felt a huge responsibility to make sure they portrayed these, these people well and, and correctly, but we did, we did as well. Um, and, you know, I remember being up in Edinburgh, and there's a line in the film where Mark, who's the soldier from Edinburgh who dies, is um, sitting on the edge of a cliff chatting to one of the other guys in the dawn. And he's talking about how his um, mate's wife sends out dog biscuits to him. He's feeding a three-legged dog that's just come up. And at the end of that screening in Edinburgh, the mate's wife came up to us and said, I was a person eight years ago who was sending dog biscuits out to Mark. And, you know, you realise partly just the, the brilliance of the research that Tom and Paul did to put that together But actually also, you know, there was someone out there in the audience that didn't particularly know that she was going to be there that day. Uh, And, you know, we were very directly touching on something that was very important to her.
1: Yeah. Um, I wonder at this stage if there's any any questions, uh, or while you think of a question. um, I'm going to ask about the, I mean, you mentioned how the, you know, the King's Speech and the BAFTA there, and Kajaki was uh, nominated for a BAFTA as well. Absolutely. Uh, Sat
2: next to two BAFTA nominees first time out, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, and it was lovely to sort of just be by close association around uh, that, uh, that activity. So both Paul and, and uh, Andrew were nominated for a Best Debut uh, with Kajaki as it's their, their first feature. Um, so, yeah, it was it was it was good fun. I was quietly rooting from my hotel room in Berlin at the time uh, and out at EFM. So uh,
1: and I wonder yeah. I wonder sort of what that
3: nomination meant for the film Um, it's an endorsement isn't it I mean it it, it, it ultimately it is it's saying that this is a proper film uh, which you know may seem strange but you're never quite sure what you what you've got until you put it out there and you see an audience response Um, so to get that nod was 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 much appreciated Mm. Um, I'm not sure it made an awful lot of difference to its to its legs in terms of the the theatrical it was towards the end of its run Um, but uh, you know it's a nod that's well worth well worth having.
2: Mm. They did both insist on being called the BAFTA nominees for about two week period in the run up to the, the awards. <laughs> it was BAFTA nominated Paul Katis and BAFTA nominated Andrew de and I mean, it? I think the, the sort of the credibility that it afforded by our peers within the film world was one thing, but the great thing was that it actually, it only echoed what the critics were saying and what the critics were saying, which was, you know, across the board, very, very favorable and in fact, sort of put us slightly ahead of how American Sniper was being reviewed but then that echoed again what the veterans felt about the film, and ultimately it was that, that group that we wanted to best serve. Mm. Um, the, other, the other accolades were, were sort of nice little treats, but we felt we'd done the right thing by the guys.
1: Yeah, and it's in, I've noticed how... I've seen a couple of pieces um, written in, in the last few days about how American Sniper and Kajaki have sort of been released on the same... I think was that something that you were trying to avoid uh, and what I mean what's happened there f- I
2: mean I know it's funny because I mean the way the way release strategies are put together I mean they're broken up into multiple different windows and everything that releases in the theatres around the same time is likely to hit home entertainment uh, and I mean physical DVD blu-ray and also iTunes and those platforms so you're always jockeying a little bit and there is some movement in it where I mean, you know, I, I wouldn't be lying to say we found out their date, we moved, they then moved for their own reasons, we then had the decision whether we moved back. So there was a little bit of sort of jockeying and ultimately we have ended up within the same weekly window. Um, but I think it's, you know, uh, the film holds up to scrutiny and actually gets people talking about the differences between how the Americans have decided to portray their involvement in Iraq with that film and how we've decided to portray uh, our involvement in Afghanistan through, through our film. So, you know, having, I think, once you realise that you can't escape the fight, you have to sort of stand your ground, adopt a stance and, and get ready to, to get down and dirty. Mm. They're very yeah. different movies. Yes,
3: I'd recommend you watch both of them, to be honest, because they are different movies. Um, and they show a contemporary war from two different, two different angles.
1: Yeah, I, want, I do wonder kind of how you... Because this... Kajaki does feel sort of uniquely British... You know, it, 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 I, there's something about American war movies that are all kind of, you know, like, hoorah, and, you know, let's go in there with the ultimate warriors. We're going to, you know, level, level everything and kick some ass. But there's something about Kajaki that's, uh, there's a different feeling to it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I'm wondering what, what, what you think, you know, uh, how you feel it's kind of different to those, uh,
3: you know, I mean, I mean, It didn't road. always used to be the case. I mean, you know, it wasn't so long ago, post-Vietnam, that America was making movies about their military that was... It was more questioning, questioning, absolutely, Um, whereas now they tend to be a little bit more sort of straightforward pro. We just have a different approach to the way we look at these things. Um, How would you describe that approach? uh, Well, for starters, you know, we we come to this story from an ensemble piece. It's about a bunch of ordinary guys. These aren't heroes, they haven't been born heroes in a sense. It's very early on in sort of filmmaking that you, you, you have with the Hollywood approach that you are told as an audience member who your hero is going to be. It's going to be him over there. Uh, And you'll know it's him, because he's the biggest star. Um, Now, the thing about that is that it means that you are slightly skewing the audience's expectations of what's going to come later on. Um, They're going to want certain key scenes to be delivered to make them feel comfortable that they've been through an experience with this particular hero. Mm. Um, It's very unlikely, also, that you're going to kill him off in the first reel. Mm. So from our point of view, um, that's sort of not what we wanted to portray, which is that when you have a group of men in an environment like this, fate will happen to you, come what may and whoever you are. Just because you're the captain or you're the sergeant or you're whatever else doesn't mean you're going to be spared. Um, so in line with that, with our casting approach, I think, you know, genuinely watching your, when you're watching Kajaki, you've got no idea what will happen next. You know there's nobody being nominated as your key hero um, and there's certainly no comfort that we offer you as a filmmaker pointing you in one direction or another and to a certain extent I think that makes the makes the film watching experience just a little bit more tense and a little bit more on edge than it would be if you had those normal Hollywood tropes to comfort you. Yeah, I've just made that up, by the way, but it's, it's but no, completely I mean, intelligent. It, come,
1: it, it does come back to what I was saying initially about how you know if you're if you've got these group of guys and oh it's Tom Hardy you're like oh he's not going to disappear in the first five minutes is he you know yeah, it, yeah. It, it does kind of bring this and it, it brings realism to it as well um, that uh, you know yeah it's it's probably the most tense viewing experience uh, you know that I've had. Uh, in you know, I, you know, I can't, I can't remember how long. Um, I should
2: just touch on the. I mean, I do very much urge everyone to, to pick up the film on iTunes because of the fact that we're in the public domain. We've had to sanitise the language and some of the injuries that are seen. And you know, what you've seen as a taster of the movie is is quite different from from the experience you get from watch, watching it. Um, but I think the, the closest we've alluded to is we, we showed the, uh, the reactions trailer, yeah. didn't we, uh, at first up, and that's very much the, the audience interaction with the film. It is an absolute edge of
1: your seat thriller. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, are there any questions from you guys? down here there's just, just microphone coming here.
3: Was there any scenes that didn't make it to the final um, version or? Um, that's a good question. Uh, no, I think we were very economical we're with our pretty, shooting, yeah. um, so we couldn't have the luxury of sort of cutting scenes. I think I think that there are scenes that have been shortened, uh, and there have been scenes that overlap one another to try and keep the keep the thing moving forward. But that's all part of the normal editing process. I can't think of any specific scenes we dropped. Can you? Uh, we dropped one when we were shooting because we decided actually then we didn't need to need to shoot it. Um, uh, but I don't think we came back and just put anything in the bin. Yeah. It's a question at the back there.
2: All right. You said you uh, you got the permission of the soldiers and their families. Did you have any comeback at all from the Ministry of Defense or any politicians who didn't perhaps want the story told in this way?
3: Um, um, good question. Do you
0: want yeah, to one of the things we had to do right at the beginning was to engage with the MOD in order to then engage with the serving soldiers because, you know, they were employees of the MOD. Uh, that took quite a long time to get through to the MOD and for them to get in a position where they'd allow us to speak to the soldiers. Um, they did allow us to speak to the soldiers, but then about a beginning of last year, before production, uh, they did pull up the drawbridge and actively... Briefed against us and the production, um, it wasn't something they wanted to go into production. I think originally and initially there was probably a fear about what the film was going to be. They, you know, we hadn't made the film yet, um, and so yeah, we did. We did come up against some brick walls with the MOD.
3: I I think think
0: also
2: also to its benefit. I mean, you know, this is a a very sophisticated relationship between us as filmmakers, the families, and the MOD at large. And in some ways, I actually take a lot of comfort for the fact that they didn't throw their doors open and welcome us with welcome open arms, because I think I I would have really struggled to sit in front of an audience of friends and family of those that have been injured through war, and there be any accusation that this was a campaign film that was pro-war. That would have really been very difficult for me so i think the fact that they haven't helped us gives us a little bit of distance but it does get really upsetting when you know you meet people that have served that have experienced some of the things that are similar to kajaki that wanted to come out and support the film and visibly support the film by say coming in their uniform or talking openly about it with their peers have absolutely you know it is a standing order from the mod that any soldier uh, or serving forces personnel can't come to the film in their uniform, can't engage on social media with what they think about the film. So I think there is some tones of censorship, but I actually relish the fact that no one's pointing the finger at us and saying, you know, we've made a film that suggests people should go to war. You know, that would be been politically a very
1: difficult place to be in. And when you say it took a long time, I think it took, was it
3: a year and a half? Yeah, 18 months amazing. It was the longest part of the production process, yeah, to be honest, it was just was it. waiting for the M.O.D. to say, yes, you're allowed to speak to serving soldiers. But then I think there's
2: a really interesting situation when you actually sit the U.S. against the. The, the UK and how we treat our serving forces and the stories we tell so the MOD took 18 months to grant access, were fi- quite fearful of the film we were going to make, were worried about how do you do a, a war film on our sort of budget, you know it was all can't do, can't do, worry, 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 whereas when we approached the Department of Defence to talk to a couple of the Parajumpers that came in for the rescue within 48 hours they'd read the script, they'd responded and there was an offer of help so I think there's a there's a There's an institutionalized way in which the Americans are geared up to tell these type of stories and are ready to and we are just and I think it sort of almost touches on how we honor our our our, our personnel. It's almost like we have to stay arms distant, a little bit dispassionate, can't be too gung- ho. I think there's just a cultural difference between us and the and the Yanks on that front
1: So I know that we're running short on time so The only other thing I was going to ask was that that the fact that I mean this is seemingly and I sort of followed this you know from the beginning uh, and it's seemingly taken up you know a year of your life full-time more you know in in, you know as well I'm wondering if now you're kind of thinking about what you're hoping to do next
3: maybe Uh, give 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 these lucky few a scoop yeah yeah, The tricky thing with having to self-direct, I mean, this is self-distribute, is that you have to do it yourself, uh, which people don't advise you about. They say it's all a really good idea, but the reality is that it's a lot of work to distribute a film, um, and it's taken up all of our time, far more than it probably should have done. However, it's a fantastic learning curve, and I do definitely think it's brought me as a filmmaker, for instance, closer to the audience experience. You know, trudging around all those cinemas that we went to, Some really beautifully looked after, fantastic management, and really good relationship with their audience. Some less so. Uh, The whole popcorn sort of uh, experience versus art house experience and things like that. It's worthwhile sort of getting in touch and getting out there and understanding what audiences are after um, before you design your next movie. And actually sort of recommend it for anybody, really, actually, that they do a, do a, do a, a stretch doing distribution like this. Uh, so they learn a little bit about what it's like. But what it has definitely also meant is that you know, some of the planning for the future has had to go on the back burner, which is probably not a clever thing. And uh, we are now engaging a little bit more closely with what we're going to try and do next. got a couple of projects. One of them is military-based, again, uh, but the others aren't. I love
2: the I love the fact that Michael, in his position, uh, I, I think it was in the intro. He's actually one of the editors of Screen Daily, so he's just waiting for one of us to drop <laughs> a scoop for him. But he's pushing it onto. It's your opportunity to pick up. These a scoop. guys want to know. Yeah, yeah that's no, what I'm no, 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 You, you want guys want to know. Wanna know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I mean yeah. personally, I've I've done two two films back to back, which have been hot, deserty, and shouting, and people getting hurt, and I'm sort of done with that for a little while. I mean, I'm doing a very fluffy rom com um next to just uh, just uh, put some humor back into
1: my my life <laughs> well on that note um kajaki the true story is available now on itunes and was released today on uh dvd and blu-ray so if you haven't seen it go and get it immediately um and if you have seen it go and get it and see it again um it's well worth it in the meantime please thank our guests paul andrew and gareth